Our scripture today is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made, him, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us... By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and has seated, with it, with, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming, of, coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of the grace and the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works so that no man can boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Katie. Well, I uh, went to, uh, some of you may have heard me tell this story before. I went to a seminary in um, Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, actually on the border of Clinton, Mississippi and Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, and our seminary townhomes that we lived in uh, were these kind of blue wooden townhomes that kind of situated themselves uh, near a train track. And when we first moved in, I remember uh, moving everything into our little townhome there and the train track was literally just gosh, I don't even know, maybe 100 yards away, uh, maybe a little more, but not much. And when we moved in, it was interesting putting everything into the house and, and uh, in our little uh, townhome, we had a little patio in the back. And I remember having things hung up and, <clears throat> and uh, on the walls, some of our pictures and things. And all of a sudden, we start hearing this little rattling on the windows and the, the pictures on the walls kind of tap a little bit. And we realize, rrr, rrr, here's the train sound. It's just rushing through. It's just, and the, you, the whole place, you feel it. It's like, it's like it, it just the whole place decided just to shake. And you, you hear this resounding horn that you hear, you know, now at football games, they use them all the time, uh, because of that reason, because it's loud and obnoxious and in your ears. And... <clears throat> And it was just so profound. I remember the first few weeks, even months, it was hard to get used to simply the fact that you know, you're trying to sleep. You just, it just would come out of nowhere. It happened early in the morning. I mean, the train, it's not on your watch. It's on theirs, you know. And uh, we literally lived on the other side of the tracks. Well, after some time, we had some people come stay with us and uh, for the first time and really to, to visit us and they're, you know, passing through and I remember them staying and all of a sudden the windows started rattling and the pictures started tapping a little bit and they were just like what is that <laughs> and uh, welcome to our home and uh, the, the train was passing through but I remember that we were kind of sitting there like oh yeah that's the that's the train you know 
just kind of does its thing. And, you know, we'd kind of gotten used to this resounding power of this train making our entire townhome shake. And yet, for them, it was this force that they, they were overwhelmed with. That is somewhat what's going on, I think, in our life. When it comes to the gospel, this passage is considered one of the most watershed passages. And a watershed, that is, is, is something that immediately, right, it comes in and it changes. It's a profound, it changes your life. It changes the course, the direction forever. Some of those events you know in your life. But it is, it is a watershed event because there's this, this two-word phrase in here, but God, that said. And for many of us, maybe we've heard that before. Maybe you've come today, I'm not sure where all of you are in terms of what you believe about Jesus or the gospel or the Bible, but I will say this, does it shake you anymore? Because the phrase, but God, is not something that's supposed to sit just lifeless. It's actually a very watershed picture of God's work here. But God means there was something before that but that says, you were dead. This is but God and then this wealth of mercy and grace. But I find ourselves and I find myself sitting in the power of God's grace and kind of going, yeah, yeah, that's, that's God's grace. I've heard it before. Is it shaking us still? Should it shake us still? Yes, absolutely. The phrase, but God, for some theologians as they wrote about this was to say, oh my word, just it's one of the most premier phrases in all of the scripture. In fact, one theologian said this, he said, it contains the understanding of you were once, but now you are, is one of the greatest short phrases in the entire Bible. That, that this is something that Paul is trying to get us to see that, that should shake us to the core in terms of joy, in terms of life. It should say, oh my goodness, if, if this is true but God, then our whole life should look different. The way we respond to grace, it's just a watershed event. It falls in that category. It just, it, 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 it changes everything about us. And so as we look at this, there's something that is called over years, we've been looking and we're almost finished to the end of it before our Advent series. It's called Anchor Doctrines of the Faith. You can see that nice little diagram on the front of your bulletin. It says Anchor Doctrines of the Faith, Reformed Theology, celebrating that. And the one that this is actually describing to us is one people have called over the years irresistible grace. And what they mean isn't that well, is it, is it nice enough? Is grace great enough? What they mean is grace is so irresistible that only God can reach into us to transform us to see that there is nothing greater but God. That is the phrase. Only he can transform us and cause us to say, well, grace is overwhelming in terms of what I've seen in my own life, in my sin, in the way that I'm, I'm messed up, my shame, my guilt, but God. So what we're gonna focus on this morning is that, the but God, what did God do and why did he do it? We're gonna just answer those two things. What did God do and why did he do it? What is this passage telling us about that? What did he do? 
What he did is it says over and over in this passage that he made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us with Jesus. He says, you were once, right? But then in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he had for us, even we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Then verse six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him. Notice there's a, there's a preposition here. It's probably one of the greatest prepositions of the New Testament. And even in the Old Testament, it's interesting. It's one of the greatest prepositions in the Old Testament. It's with. The, the preposition with in the Old Testament means that God was present with his people. When it moves into the New Testament, it doesn't mean that God is just present. It means he's in. It's so much that Paul uses it to say, we are so identified with Jesus himself that we, he links himself, that Jesus connects himself so much to you and me that every part of his saving career in terms of his life, death, and resurrection is actually ours. It's actually given to us. That we're made with him, we're united with him. This union, this successive historical events. These historical events that Paul is referring to had to be historical enough that they connect to every part of us now. John Stott, this great thinker who's now gone British thinker, he says this. Fundamental to New Testament Christianity is the concept of the union of God's people with Christ. What constitutes this distinctness of the members of God's new society is not just that they admire or even worship Jesus, not that they assent to the dogmas of the church, not even that they live by moral standards. No, what makes them distinctive is their new solidarity as people who are in Christ. That is our identity. Following him is one thing, but we only follow him because we're in him, because he links himself to us. And what does that mean? It means that he connects himself. Every trespass, look, as, and as you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he says, even when you were dead, uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. He brought us out of trespasses. That every part of you that trespasses, that goes against Right? What is a trespass? Our false steps. It's stepping in places that we shouldn't step. And our sins are things that we miss the mark. It's our trying and getting there. Every one of those, Jesus decides he's going he's to take on our trespasses and yet never have a false step. He's going to take on our sin and yet never, ever miss the mark. He in our trespasses and sins does that and he makes us alive. And this living is this realization, it isn't a realization, it's a realization of the reaction to what God has done. One of my favorite things on, it was talking when I worked on a campus for years, was meeting with our campus ministers. And over and over, one of the, the, the things that they would say is, what is your favorite thing about doing campus ministry? And some would say, well, I enjoy, you know, the large group aspect. But every time the pattern was, I love what's called the aha moment. And the aha moment was when you would meet with someone and you would begin to discuss this, this very simple aspect of the good news of the gospel. And all of a sudden there was this, wow, seriously? And it was this reaction to this life-giving thing that this student or person you would meet with would, would actually connect to it and say, wait, 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 you mean 
I'm actually alive in him? There's this aha, this, it's a realization. It's to the reaction. It's not the realization itself. It's a realization of it. And that we're raised up in him. That, that he says not only that, that we're made alive and now raised with him and seated with him. You know, Ephesians was, uh, uh, Ephesus was a city that really held a lot of power. It was a city that actually was very religious. It had the temples in it. And it had a lot of power involved in it. It was one of the greatest economic cities. And they connected their religion and the occult to their economy uh, so much so that you can even read in Acts chapter 19 that when Paul and others went into the city and actually spoke about Jesus and it affected the way that they viewed their gods, there was a riot. There was actually a riot in the city because they thought, well, you've totally ruined not just the way we think, but you've ruined our economy. They so closely connected it. And so when it talks about this raising up, it means that we're connected to Jesus in an honorable way. It means we value something different. See, the world here, in terms of what it talks about, in terms of the world, and it's usually something we even mentioned last week, world and age. In some Hellenistic documents, an age or world could, could even mean a deity. It could be somebody that you could follow. And think about Ephesus in that way. They would see something in the world and age that they could follow. That was Artemis. That was their great god that they built a temple for. So much so, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. And they connected Artemis to their economy. And it gave them security. They felt like they had honor and value. It was a system. See, world, what Paul refers to as world here in age isn't just like one simple thing. It actually is a system of thought that gives you value and meaning. It's a way for you to make something of yourself, of honor. And so what, think about what Paul is saying when he raises up in Christ. It means we're given honor out of dishonor. Because there's a PBS um, a documentary that's actually kind of layered itself. The first one was called Merchants of Cool. They, they did a, a follow-up called Generation Like. And it was actually a uh, documentary done on how the, our culture uses uh, social media as well as um, um, kind of the advertisement world to use, especially now that we can all make videos of ourselves and where we are, it's this intertwining of of kind of the idolatry of self. It's very fascinating. Merchants of cool, to make ourselves cool and using the advertising world as well as social media in that, in that aspect. But listen to what they said. It's so thoroughly about being on display. It's about how you look. We all imagine a million cameras facing us and recording everything. Isn't that the truth? There's an acute self-consciousness that constitutes a tremendous psychological burden because you can never really feel like you're alone with yourself. You can never really feel like someone's not overhearing what you're thinking. Even the deepest privacy of our own mind, of your own mind, will often find a team, will find a team from them connected to an advertising agency. That's the most criminal aspect of this whole system. It seems to have colonized or even tries to colonize very conscious of, our, of its subjects and even youth. 
See what's saying is this, there's this created world that we have and it's very, very similar to Ephesus in that picture is how can we build ourselves up? Ephesus was known for so many religious and uh, political uh, idols that had been lifted up, even, even things put in that position. And when it talks about here the prince of the power of the air in, <clears throat> in contradiction to being raised up and seated with Jesus, he's saying there's a different authority and a different power that we have. He's physically, tangibly trying to say, what is it that you put in authority that thinks, that you think gives you something? What do you think has real power in your life? What holds real power? Because I'll tell you, does the gospel hold real power? Or do we still live, look, as you were dead and now alive. How, why is it, if this is but God, the reality, the historical truth of what is being said here about Jesus Christ, how much though, why do we still give real power to other things? See, what he did was to break that. Ephesus was huge about this. It connected the occult. Even notice that, the sons of disobedience. It says that, that there's this idea of an internal evil connecting to an external evil. And I don't know where y'all are with all of demons and those kind of things, but the Bible is saying, and as much as here and anywhere else, that there is an evil inside of us and an evil outside of us. And that the Lord is saying that when those are connected, they work in concert with one another to create a system for us to live in. That is the world. So Jesus had to break that. He had in his power to not just die for our sins, but to raise us up and to bring us seated next to him so he could break both the internal power and the external power that is around us. And it is real. As much as Jesus's power wasn't just to die on the cross and for our sins. If you notice in the gospels, he's dying to defeat all the evil, not just in us, but around us. The forces that we can't even see. As much as Jesus is God, shouldn't we know that his power has to have authority, not just in the little things that we would say are sin, but in authorities that we don't even understand. The evil that we see around us and we go, why is it there? Who is taking care of this? His power has to be that strong, internal and external. His authority is different. But why did he do it? That's what he did, but why did he do it? He did it for several reasons here, and I think that, that, that Paul draws it out. And the first one here is salvation. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses and made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Again, that says in verse eight, for great, by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, that word salvation in our context, our Christianish context, context can be thrown out of proportion. A lot of us have heard that phrase connected like, have you been saved? And we think of it as this kind of wishy-washy thing, but what does the word mean? It actually is obviously a very biblical word, and it's a very weighty one. Because the Greek word here actually means, <clears throat> a, a, the word tense is a completed action con with a continuing result. 
It means that God rescued us. Salvation means there is a rescue, a, a bringing out, a, a love of, of someone so much that they brought them out of slavery, out of fear, out of shame, and it's a rescue from, a deliverance. It's, it's a bringing out. And it keeps going. Here's what's amazing. The language of saved here is something in a continuing action. It's a marked deal in the first work of Jesus. And it means it's continued out. The work of Jesus has been done and it continues rolling. And so much so that in one of the verses here, it says in verse seven, so that in the coming ages, it talks about coming ages. What does that mean? He's actually saying that the language is like wave after wave. It's like being in the ocean and you get hit. But then after that is another wave. It's that it continues, it keeps knocking you back. It's more and more power of this grace that keeps going on us. And as I even said earlier, it's interesting that Ephesus was a city who was so self-sufficient that in a certain fire that they had in the fourth century, their temple to Artemis, who I just mentioned was that you heard me mention that is, is, was their God connected to their economy. When they had this fire that destroyed the temple and it burned it down completely, they even denied aid from Alexander the Great so they could rebuild it themselves. There was such a great self-sufficiency to them. And isn't that what he's saying here? He's saying, saved. Think about what he's writing to them. He's saying, you need to stop trying to rescue yourself. Why did God do this? Because you and I think we can still save ourselves. It's not a wishy-washy Christianish term. It's a reality. What are we trying to, what are we trying to rescue ourselves from? What do you think is your magic bullets going to rescue you? What do you think you need salvation from that you think this Christian stuff is disconnected to? God is saying saved, he means drawn out, delivered. What is it? Uh, is Nashville a place where you find that this, maybe the city, this is your ticket? M maybe you think being here, it's gonna rescue you from something else. Maybe you moved here from somewhere else thinking this is gonna be your life, this is the way to go. Maybe it's your family. Maybe there is so much of an emphasis on your family that maybe because everything's going well, and family, that you don't think that you need to be rescued from God, by God. Maybe it's something financial. Maybe it's something in your job. Maybe you look to your finances or your job to be your rescuer. And I know that sounds so trite to us, but we do it every single day. We look to these things to give us rescue. We look to them to bring us the good news but they're wishy-washy. They can be good things. But God is saying, how much do we depend on him? Are we self-sufficient, but we talk about grace? Are the windows shaking and the pictures tapping and yet we're kind of like, yeah, I kind of have this. Is it overwhelming us? Or do we still want to rescue ourselves? How much do we do it? How much do we bend the knee and say, God, I'm still trying to rescue myself in this way? And he says, but God, if you th thought you could rescue yourself in that way, I still think I can in certain ways. I still think I can rescue myself in my own goodness. 
I still think I can rescue myself if everything in my life is shored up just right. I think I can rescue myself if everything's going well, don't you? But God, because we can't, because we're weak in that endeavor. And he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he had, he loved us. I love this. That language, being rich in mercy. Mercy is a word, means hesed, kindness. But behind that word actually is an emotion. It actually, it actually means this. It's, it indicates an emotion aroused in someone to relieve someone else of trouble and burden. It means that God actually stirs in his heart to relieve you of the burden that you carry of trying to save yourself. I remember working um, uh, right, my office used to be in a place uh, where um, right off campus, and we used to have people come by that may have been homeless, and oftentimes being nearby, they would see a, a sign that says chaplain's office, and they would come in and um, ask for help and those kind of things. And I know we've all been in these experiences. You do this, maybe you're going to Starbucks, you're going to a restaurant, you're going downtown, you pull up to a stoplight somewhere and you see someone on the side with a sign or you experience someone. And I know there are all sorts of discussions to have about that, but my point is this. It, doesn't it sometimes stir in you? You just kind of pull up and you kind of go, how can I avoid making eye contact with this person? How can I actually, okay, maybe if you give to them, how can I give to them without it really pressing in on my day or my time or my money? How much do we really do that? When are the moments that you've actually looked upon someone like that and had compassion? Not compassion of giving them something, but what was connected to what you're giving them was also this heart of, whoa, you really have mercy on them. More than just the money. More than just a nod. But it stirred in you so overwhelmingly. And I remember being in that office and hearing a tap on the door and me going to the door and seeing a man with a cane who was blind. And as he was rapping on the door, he was asking, hey, where is... Uh, P.F. Chang's, which was right down the street. And he was asking, hey, can you help me get there? And I noticed on his legs, you could see where he was wearing shorts and you could see where he had run into several things with the cuts and lacerations on his shins from running into things. And as I put his hand on my shoulder to walk down to P.F. Chang's, I realized what he was doing was going into P.F. Chang's not to eat, but to ask for a job. And as I let him in, I just kind of let the door shut behind and it stirred in me a thought, gosh, what does this produce in me? To see this man who may be blind, but how blind am I? What mercy I need. What dependence this man has and what dependence do I have? So self-sufficient, so thinking that, but God's mercy and kindness, his heart towards us is so bent that it doesn't just lean towards us to say, here, you can have this. He leans all the way in. He doesn't just give us a meal. He sits with us and takes us in. 
And that is overwhelming to his grace. That's what he's doing in his kindness. It's unexpected. In fact, the phraseology here is that his mercy and grace, listen to it, by grace you have been saved. Immeasurable riches in verse seven. The coming ages might show immeasurable riches of his kindness. Immeasurable riches is something that's unexpected. It's something you didn't know you were gonna receive, but you got it anyway. Something that was lavished upon you. It's interesting reading even more about Ephesus and the way that there was such a disparity of the the wealth and poverty in that city. This lavishness is to try and overwhelm those who were both poor and rich in in this text. To say that it was unexpected, it was mercy and grace overwhelming. Grace in defined is something that we cannot merit. I remember having to raise support and always in raising and asking questions as a, as a campus minister of, of people giving. And I remember as one and being in the red, you know, it happens when you're raising support and being in the red and having someone ask me the question out of the blue without me going to them to ask for money, say, how much are you short? And me kind of getting hot in the face and thinking this few thousand, several thousands of dollars and this person without thinking saying, don't worry about it. Unexpected humbling. How do I get the words to thank? Is a thank you note enough? What's enough? And that's where I start going to merit that favor. And yet what is happening is an unexpected, overwhelming merit of grace by this person to overwhelm me. That no amount of humility can buy back and no amount of thankfulness can get. This grace is ours. This is the grace that is ours spoken of here. It is unmerited. It is nothing you can get of your own. There's no performance of it. There's nothing you can get. He loves you, he says. For it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Guys, if we hear that verse again and just let the pictures kind of rattle on the wall and the glass shake a little bit, you're missing the good news. Do not leave here without meditating on the fact that his grace You've been saved and it is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God for not as a result of works. Even in the smallest of ways, I'll see it soon. It's Christmas time at Starbucks when you're driving through the drive-thru line. Someone in front of you buys you a drink. You pull up to the window and they said, the person in front of you bought you the drink. You don't know who they are and you immediately go, wow, that's such a sweet kindness. And then you automatically, or I do, automatically go, I, gosh, I guess I need to buy the person behind me. And you look in your rear view to see how many people are in the car. That's how you merit. But is that what we can do? We can't merit that. There's nothing you can do to pay it back. I can't buy more. What do I try and buy myself out? That's what we want to do. God's grace is overwhelming, but God, it is a watershed event. There's nothing you can do to change it. It is yours. It is set in time. In fact, when you read this language, what Paul is saying over and over 
in his language is that this historical rooted event of Jesus Christ is done and ongoing. There's nothing you can change. And it is so overwhelming that we, we can only live in it. And here's what's beautiful at the end of it. He finished this, this passage in verse 10 by saying, we are his workmanship. And, and for some people, you might get confused because it says created for Jesus, in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus for good works. But the language here of workmanship is this. It actually is a word that means poema. It means God's work of art. It's like this. Coming to this table is not the beginning. and It's not the end. We're in between. It's like many of you who may be songwriters here in the music industry. There's a, there's a process in that. A rich process where, you know, you may begin writing a song or putting it together, but what is really in the mix is when you're in the middle of it, putting everything together. The music, the lyrics, changing words, going back over and over. It's a process. It's a work of art. It's workmanship. And what we're doing by coming to this table is we're not saying we're done. And we're not saying we shouldn't do any good works. You're coming to this table to take this as a work of grace, not a work of trying to gain favor. This isn't your buying Starbucks for the person behind you. This is because it's been overwhelmed on you. And you're in the midst of God's workmanship. You are being recreated even now, even now, but God. It's happening even now. And what do we say? Until he comes again, I'm about to say those words in a minute. Do not take those words lightly. That we are celebrating his death, that marked thing in history and time because it affects you. And what? Because he's at work in you, poema. You, his beautiful poetry. You, his workmanship. Until he comes again and you are finished. And you were put out there for all to hear and enjoy. So with that, let's stand together.